Welcome to Game Changers Live from Miami, Florida. My name is Sergio Tijera. I'm your host. And each and every week, we bring you someone who has been a game changer in their field and who's touched the lives of thousands to get their perspective on their journey, their mindset, their struggles and successes so that we can inspire you on your journey. So let's get started right now. All right, all right. Welcome to Game Changers Live from Miami, Florida. My name is Sergio Tijet. I'm your host, and we have a very special guest with us here today. It's Richard Bliss Brook. And this gentleman has been a full-time network marketing sales leader and company owner since 1977. He's built his own team of 30,000 active partners in four years at the age of 22, which is just unbelievable. Richard has owned his own network marketing companies from 1986 up until 2017 when he sold them to a billion-dollar MLM company. And in those 30 years, Richard served on the board of directors of the Direct Selling Association and on its ethics committee, pioneering ethical changes in the profession. He was featured on the cover of Success Magazine in 1992, the first and only time that Success Magazine featured a network marketer on its cover. The issue outsold every issue in the 100-year history of the magazine. Richard is the author of Mach 2, The Art of the Vision and Self-Motivation, as well as The Four-Year Career. All right. He and his wife, Kimmy Brooke, live in Lanai, Hawaii. So, hey, welcome to the show, Richard. Thank you, Sergio. And I'm back. And we got that Sony working again. <laughs> Hopefully, this won't keep happening throughout the interview. Let's see if it does. This is the uh, the joy of uh, watching live. Right, exactly. Been through it. Well, thank All you for right. the introduction. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, listen, you've been in in the uh, marketing game. Wow, here we go again. All right, give me one second. Let me just switch cameras. And there we go. So you've been in the marketing game now for for you know thirty plus years. What has been the the most important lesson, the most important either life or business lesson that you've taken from all the all these years in the game? Well, you know, I think the first thing that comes up for me, Sergio, is um, is play the long game. I have been actually in business now for forty four years. Started when I was twenty two. I'm 65. I guess I'm going into my 45th year. Um, and you know, I have, if you look, if you look at my resume and you know, it looks pretty good, right? Like, you know, a pretty good success story, but what people don't see, which I guess maybe ought to be part of our introduction, right? Wouldn't it be interesting if our introduction had a list of all of our failures? (laughs) Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Here's all of our wonderful accomplishments, but what about the failures? And my failures would be, you know, I think five or 10 to one over successes, five wow. or 10 to one over successes. And so, you know, you have a bad month, you have a bad quarter, you have a bad year. I'm pretty sure I had in the last four and a half decades, a bad decade, <laughs> right? <laughs> And so if you if you pay attention to the immediate result that you're getting in life or business, it can be pretty frustrating. It can 
it can put you in a funk right away. But yeah. I think I, I've been the benefit of great coaching and great mentors and great philosophies to not get my motivation from the results that I'm producing out in the world, but to get my motivation from my own personal vision, my values, my gifts, my stories, and and play the long game, which is, you know, have some have ambition and have a sense of urgency, but also have patience because when it comes to anything you and I want to create in our life, in a sense, we're competing with what everybody else in the world wants to create in their life, right? So if I want to sell you something, that's my vision, that's my agenda, but I'm competing with your vision and your agenda, which may not be to buy what I'm selling, right? right? And so I think, you know, people get hung up in, I've got to, I've got to make the sale to this person today, or I'm not good enough, or this isn't working, or I'm going to fail. And I think I've just learned to be patient, play the long game, be consistent, and be passionate, and have a sense of urgency. But I'll be here for the for the long haul. I never wanted to be a flash in the pan or a one hit wonder or, you know, to have some extraordinary success story in one decade, but then have the following decades be, you know, not good. And so I've just done that and it's worked. So patience is, is, is obviously almost a lost art nowadays because everybody wants it faster now, immediate gratification, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's, it's not, um, it's not as common, let's say, in, in terms of being taught by your parents and, and society to be patient and, and play the long game. People want instant gratification. They want instant fame and so forth. And a lot of that comes from societal pressures. And so how do you, you know, and how do you not keep up with the Joneses, right? How to kind of stay, you know, stay in your lane, stay committed, stay focused. As Zig Ziglar used to say, it's uh, consistent persistence. Right. Or persistent consistency. (laughs) Yeah, I just actually just talked about this on my uh, I go live every morning on Facebook and pontificate for 10 minutes. And this morning I talked about um, competition versus collaboration. You know, the paradigm in our society, you know, almost all parents raise their kids to win, to be competitive, to whether it's in sports or school or or anything else, you know, it's kind of like the game is always on to compete with other people. And so if you dissect that and you kind of look at the psychology behind competition, what's that all about? And, you know, it it can certainly have a healthy component, I suppose. But I think there's a deeper unhealthy component of competition, which is, you know, I have to win in order to feel good about myself. And in order for me to feel good about myself, you have to lose. Mm-hmm. So my route to self-esteem is damaging the self-esteem of everybody in my life, right? I mean, that's kind of an oversimplification of it. But if you think about competition, that's the nature of it from a psychological standpoint. And so the philosophy that I teach people is, hey, don't get your self-esteem from beating other people, from winning, from setting you know, the records out in the world because everybody else is aspiring to the same thing. So it's kind of a train wreck on the race to the top, right? Instead of that philosophy, how about compete with yourself? And yesterday, Sergio, I 
I shot my best round ever on the front nine holes of my golf course here. I saw you guys on social media playing. I was je- I was jealous. I was, I was yeah, well, yeah, that was the back nine. Gimme and I played the back nine for you know just goofing around. But I walked the front nine, which is a pretty uh, tough walk, and I shot a thirty-seven, one over par, which I've never done in my life. And so what I teach people is compete with yourself, not with other people. And, col- and what do you do with other people? Collaborate with other people. A rising tide lifts all ships. Mm-hmm. How about we collaborate with each other and, and get coaching and get ideas from each other on how we can personally achieve our best so that we get sort of a hockey stick approach to our own life. You know, what I want my life to look like is every year, every decade is better. I have better relationships. I have better health. I have more income. I have more wealth. I have better extraordinary experiences. You know, I want my 100th year in life to be more extraordinary than my 95th year. And I'm not going to get that from competing with everybody else that's trying to do the same thing. I'm going to get that from competing with myself. And to do that, you got to get your self-esteem from somewhere else besides beating other people. And, you right. and you know, that's kind of what my book, Mach 2, is about, is creating a personal vision uh, of higher self-esteem, higher self-worth, so that you can be a more peaceful warrior in life. And on competition, the way I see it is that it, it drives comparison. And comparison is a killer of self-confidence, of, of drive, of efficacy, of everything that you try to build throughout the day. As soon as you compare, there's always going to be somebody one-upping you, right? Whether it's your financial situation, whether it's your education, whatever that is. And so to your point, as we work on ourselves, are you better today than you were yesterday? Every day yeah. and focusing on what you can control because we can't always control the outcomes. Exactly. If you think about everybody else out there in the world that's ambitious is pursuing to win, right? And if, if that's the way you play the game is, okay, I got to compete with everyone in the world, whether it's for how many likes I get on Facebook or, you know, how skinny and rich I am or how popular I am or, you know, whether I win business contest, salesman of the year or whatever, it's just a bad setup to be competing with the world in order to get your joy. I don't remember who said it, but somebody famous said comparison is the thief of joy. And I mean, no greater uh, example of that today than social media. I mean, people, absolutely, they base everything on social media around who's getting more likes than they are, how many likes they get, how many comments they get how many shares they get. And I get there's a business strategy to that, but that's where we ought to leave it. You know, a business strategy, not our self-esteem. That's right. Because you're leaving your self-esteem in the hands of others to either raise you up or, 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 you know, or drop you down and step on you. Right. And, and just kind of make you look bad. Yeah. So remember they're trying to beat you. So (laughs) they're going to be gracious. (laughs) It's tremendously short lived. It's just, you know, it's like you get a hit, and then, you know, you're on top of it for maybe, you know, 10 minutes, half an hour, and then you're back down again. Then you need more. You need more. And so we're, we're leaving that outside of us. Uh, there's a great concept on the locus of control, right? Whether kind of things happen to us or are we in control of our own happiness, of our own life and kind of things that happen to us. Right. So you live in Hawaii. So not, 
not too bad of a place to live. I think there's worse places to live on, on this planet. What drives you every day? Is it, was this a dream for you to, to be out there with your wife and, and, you know, playing golf on, uh, on this beautiful uh, ocean view or what? No, actually, I think it's a lesson in being flexible and being willing to pivot when a pivot is called for. So when I met uh, Kimmy, my wife, I, I've always had a, it's just a personal preference that where I live is really, really important to me. And I spent a lot of my life learning to tolerate places that I lived, right? <laughs> I was there for business. And so I just had to tolerate it. And I won't name the places I learned to tolerate because it'll offend the people that live there now. <laughs> but I, you know, as I got a little later on in life, I thought, you know what? Life's too short. Um, I, I want to design where I live and I'll figure everything else out from there. And so when I met my wife, Kimmy, I lived in Carmel, California, which for people that know Carmel, Pebble Beach, um, is pretty much a paradise. Not too bad and, either. And I belong to this extra, the most extraordinary golf club ever, equestrian club. And I was, you know, five miles from the beach, but in the sun, not in the fog. And that was in the winter. In the summer, I lived in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, which is like, it's like a Lake Tahoe in Idaho. I mean, I just had everything wired. And then I met Kimmy and married Kimmy and she was from Hawaii. And, and I mean, I had everything wired for like 10 years. I was deeply entrenched in these communities, my homes, everything was perfect. <laughs> but Kimmy wanted to move back to Hawaii because that's where she grew up. And, um, so, you know, it took me a, a little bit, you know, but I basically I just used the philosophy in my book. Uh, I just started creating a new story about, okay, now I live in Hawaii. What will that look like? How do I appreciate that? How do I find the extraordinary in living in Hawaii? And part of that was we had to find the right island because I, I don't like traffic. I don't like crime. I don't like sirens. I don't like honking. I don't like the crowds, right? I don't like any of that. I'm a rural kind of guy. I don't think you'd like it in Miami then because we've got uh, everything in there on that I list. Like, I've been to, I like Miami Beach. So South Beach I can do for three or four days. Pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but we actually found kind of by accident, but not really by accident, uh, an island that people generally don't think to live on in Hawaii. It's called Lanai. And there's only 3,000 people that live here. And there's no stoplights. The speed limit's 35 miles an hour. You can drive your golf cart everywhere. Nice. And it's just a beautiful place. And so we've been here about six years. And yeah, paradise. So tell me about talking about environment. Tell me about the importance of environment on your life. And I, I don't mean just where you live, but the environment that you surround yourself with, the things that you consume every day, it, whether it's you know, through your ears, through your, uh, through your eyes, uh, the people around you, their opinions. And how, ha how important is that to success in, in your line of work and in, in general? I think it's everything. Um, you know, there's this cliche that your, your income is the average of your five closest friends. I don't think that's true at all. Um, I think, you know, we, we, uh, to broaden it a little bit, 
um, that we are the product, perhaps, of the five or seven or three or eight people that we allow to have the most influence on us. If I was the, if my income was the average of my five closest friends, <laughs> I'd be broke. <laughs> so I have very close friends that don't aspire to big incomes. Right. Uh, but I don't listen to them for life philosophies or strategy, right? That's just um, stressing and, and just hanging out. And, and Yeah. The people I listen to for life strategies and philosophies, uh, you know, seven figures would be a low income for them. Um, you know, they're super fit. They're super happy. They're super engaged in life. They're contributing their philosophies. They're not... They're not hoarding, they're giving, and they get compensated in accordance. They're people that, you know, on a scale of one to 10 or a 10 when it comes to contribution and inspiration. And those are the people I listen to, and, and they're not all the same, right? I have lots of mentors, lots of people I study and listen to, and they don't necessarily agree with each other. I like that diversity. But if you think about you know, how human beings develop, if you were to interview, you know, let's say the first time a kid can actually have a conversation two or three years old, I don't know how old that is, but let's say it's three, four years old, whenever it is, right? And you, you ask the kid, so what do you think, conservative or liberal, right? <laughs> you know, what's the four-year-old going to say? Uh, you know, how about where's my, you know, Where's food, right? Where's my toy? Um, But if you keep interviewing the kid, they're going to develop an opinion. And the opinion, whether it's religion or politics or, you know, social influence or, you know, their attitude about income and abundance, you know, so many people are raised with a bad attitude when it comes to income and abundance. Like, they're not worth it. It's not good. Rich people are bad. They're evil. Um, you know, the bigger your house, the more you have to clean, the more money you make, the more taxes you have to pay. Sure. You know, people have all these bankrupt attitudes about money. Where did they get those? They got them from their parents. And where did their parents get them? From the grandparents. And where did the grandparents get them? From the great-grandparents. I mean, when it comes to us being developed by our environment, almost all of us are the product of people from the 16, 17, 18, 19, early 1900s, right? There's not a lot of independent breakthrough values being expressed there. And so I think environment's everything. And what I, I know you coach Sergio and I coach people on, hey, recognize what you are a product of who you are a product of. And that doesn't mean it's bad or limiting. Just recognize it. Mm -hmm. And maybe start asking the questions, if I had full permission from society, from my family, from my spouse, full permission from myself to become anyone I wanted to become, to do anything I wanted to do, to even have anything I wanted to have, if I had full permission, what would I want to do? What would be important to me? And I think, you know, part of how we have a breakthrough life is to develop some independent critical thinking 
about what's important to us and give ourselves permission to pursue it so that we're not just a clone of our parents, our grandparents, and our great-grandparents. We're on with Richard Blissbrook, live from Hawaii, motivational speaker, author, and master networker, author of these books right here, The Four-Year Career and Mach 2. We'll talk about these here in a minute. As we were going through here and you know, talking about comparison and your environment and, and your beliefs and why do we have the same, you know, the beliefs that our parents do? Well, because it was passed down as we started absorbing these over time. And we don't often stop and take inventory and say, okay, where does this come from? Why do I believe this? And is it just by happenstance or is it something that I truly believe in? And so as we start moving towards the future and, you know, after this year, hopefully, and, and it's, a, I think, you know, it's a, I always tell people it's a perception. Uh, yes, it's been a terrible year in, in so many ways, but there's also a lot of silver linings that have come with it. I think an attention to kind of disconnecting a bit more, kind of bringing it back towards, you know, family and spending quality time at home instead of always chasing going out, you know, chasing people on social media and what they're doing. And we got to go to the next party and fear missing out and all that stuff. So I think that was a big reset. So Everything that happens to us, there's a saying there that it doesn't happen to us. Everything happens for us. And that's a, a way of looking at things, right? Is that something that you, that you incorporate into your life, that everything that happens to you happens for a reason? Yes. I mean, you know, I think, you know, we're, we're either succeeding or we're learning. And it's not the circumstances in life. It's how we respond to the circumstances Circumstances are created out there in the world, right? They're created by, I, I don't know, right? They're created by the universe. They're created by the economy. They're created by seven and a half billion other people that are doing their thing. Governments, you know, the media, right? They, they create circumstances. And it, it's not for us to try to create perfect circumstances. It's really for us to figure out how do we survive, how do we adapt, how do we prosper, how do we pivot and get what we want out of life, given whatever circumstances there are. So, you know, probably a great analogy is, you know, everybody gets all upset because, okay, now the liberals are running the government and before it was the conservatives running the government. But if you look over the last hundred years, right, it's pretty much gone like this. (laughs) Every four or eight years, it's a different agenda running the government. And so if you go back to my original premise of, hey, don't pay so much attention to this month, this quarter, this year, play the long game. So in the long game, it doesn't matter who's running the government. Figure out how to pivot, how to adapt, how to, um, you know, make a move with it, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things I heard locally here that, the guy that owns our island is Larry Ellison, who's the founder of Oracle Computers. And I don't know what his politics are, but I, I know he's you know super pro-business, but I think he's also super pro-environment and you know a lot of other things. And, and I noticed one of the first things he did when Trump became the president is he went to meet with Trump. And, I, and what I heard, you know, everybody said, oh, my gosh, is he pro-Trump? You know, because they didn't think he was. But what I read an article about it is, you know, it never said whether he was pro-Trump or not. What he was pro was, now that Trump's president, I'm going to figure out 
how myself and Oracle and all my other business interests can win sure. this environment, right? Mm-hmm. So I'll bet he goes and meets with Biden. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, hey, figure it out. So, you know, COVID's happening right now, right? And and so if you own a restaurant or a, you know, sports bar or a gym, well, you might want to think about pivoting because there are some professions and some industries that are winning big right now, even, you know, in this environment. So the question is, not how do we change the circumstance, but how do we change our journey? How do we change how we adapt to it? And it starts with attitude, right? If your attitude is, well, the circumstances are bad, so I'm just going to poor me. I'm going to be a victim. I'm going to be a complainer. You know, complaining is a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If you go down that that hole, there's no cheese down there. It's a dead end, right? You just spiral into more depression, you manifest more bad circumstances. What we have to do is, you know, keep our head above the clouds, keep our eye on the prize and improvise, adapt and overcome just like the Marines, right? Mm -hmm. That's how you deal with circumstances and you win long-term. And to the point of attitude, an attitude is whether, you know, if you have a positive attitude, you're leaning in towards something you're excited about, or you're getting creative energy from it. If you're leaning away from it, you find yourself creatively avoiding things and procrastinating. And one of the things I always tell my clients is that events that happen are neutral. It's, it's our, our perception of it. it. Either we're looking at it from this direction or from this direction, whether it seems positive or negative, right? Kind of based on, <laughs> on our perception. So exactly to your point. Now, what, if we go back to your to your life, uh, you know, whether it's your career, your upbringing, all your experiences, was there a game changing moment or event where the light went off and you just saw things differently? And your either your career took off, your life took off, you started thinking differently. Was there a defining moment or moments in your life that happened in that way? Yeah, I'd say there were two, and they were both based on relationships with people that I chose to be part of my environment. Um, I'm not really sure how I had the insight for this, Sergio, but maybe just because I'm a rebel. um, I never really looked to my parents as role models. I watched them, I learned from them, but I didn't automatically adopt as my philosophy, whatever their philosophies were. And I'm sure I did that to some degree, but I always had a consciousness about who did I want to become? And it didn't matter to me who they wanted me to become. It just mattered who I wanted to become. And I think because of that, I put myself in a position to meet people and listen to people that you know might provide me with breakthroughs. Um, the first one was in 1977. I was 22 years old. I just you know, got into business for the first time. I didn't know anything about business. I didn't really like business. It was a sales opportunity. I didn't like sales. But I met a man, a mentor, um, a a motivational kind of person. First person I'd ever met in my life, Sergio, that was a representative of the personal development uh, transformational development, even back then they called it the positive mental attitude movement. 
the the idea that hey whatever you and i want the way we get it is to be a hundred percent responsible for our own actions for our own attitude and if we're a hundred percent responsible for our own attitude and our own actions and we do what's required we learn from people that have done what we want to do we can achieve anything in life and i i latched on to him his name was kurt rob he's passed on now and he he turned my life around um, because I just listened to his philosophies, and and it was a challenge. But the next person I met is somebody that you know indirectly perhaps has had a big influence on your life, Lou Tice. That's right. Uh, and I met Lou Tice in about 1982 or 1983, so I was about you know five or six years into my career, and the things that Lou Tice taught me modernized the things that I had been learning the last five or six years. I was learning from the books like The Magic and Believing and Think and Grow Rich and, and you know, all the old classics, the stuff that was 70, 80, you know, even 2,000 years old. I was studying those philosophies. And Lou Tice put it all into modern day, make sense language. And, you know, I think a, a, a great deal of my coaching intuition and ability comes from studying Lou Tice's philosophy. And he founded the Pacific Institute, which has influenced Fortune 100 companies, governments. He's he's influenced the whole world from being a high school football coach. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Exactly. And I first encountered the Pacific Institute my first year at Caterpillar, and that completely transformed my my way of thinking and my career as well. And I had the good fortune uh, of of uh, being their executive director for U.S. market development for a couple of years. Uh, once Lou passed away, and then they moved uh, the uh, the one of the main headquarters down here to Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. So fantastic, Richard. Tell me a bit about the four year career and and Mach Two. What are the main things that we're addressing in these books right here? Well, the four-year career is all about network marketing, which is not a very popular subject. Uh, uh, those of us that are network marketers, there's about a hundred million of us around the world. Um, yeah, we're the only people that are selling something <clears throat> that everybody else has already decided they what they don't want. <laughs> <laughs> it might be the hardest thing go. to sell in the world, but if you figure out how to sell it which some of us have, uh, it can set you up forever. And basically the four-year career is, you know, just a uh, an expose on the model of how instead of a 40-year career, which is basically the model that was taught to me growing up, go find a big company, work for them for 40 years, right. and then try to retire on one-third of what wasn't enough for 40 years. <laughs> so... What's possible in network marketing, and I'm not saying it's easy or even probable, but it's certainly possible, is to build something in four or five years or six years or seven years um, that pays you for the rest of your life. And that's a pretty interesting model if you can build something once and get paid forever. I work with people who are living the high life based on a business built by their parents, even a business built by their grandparents. And they are now the heirs to that income. And, you know, that's what the four-year career is about. What Mach 2 is about 
is motivation. And it's, it's one of the things that I learned from Lou Tice. Like one of the biggest distinctions I got from Lou Tice, it's just all the lights went on when I got this. And I'm not sure how he said it or if he even said it. I just got it sitting in his presence. I'm not sure what he was talking about. <laughs> um, but that desire is not motivation. And it's actually why I wrote Mach 2 is sitting in one of Lou Tice's sessions Listening to him talk about distinctions and the distinction that I got in his presence and in his message was we're all, I think, kind of raised up with the idea that if you want something bad enough, that you'll get it. And wow, I've, I'd already been in business about six years and I'd seen a whole world that really, really wanted to be skinny and rich. And most, most of them weren't any closer to it than when they started, right? Some were even backsliding. Why was that? Because desire is one thing. It just points us in a direction. It's like, you know, it's like a compass, okay? You want, you want something? Great. You and seven and a half billion other people. Sure. But how do you create the energy, the physical energy, the emotional energy, the intellectual energy, the creative energy to like go for it, go do the thing. It's like weight loss, right? How many people could write a book on weight loss? Let's say it's a short ebook. What are the five most important things to weight loss? Probably everybody watching your podcast could write an ebook. What are the five most important things to weight loss, right? Doing it is another story. Yeah, and 70% of the authors would be fat. That's right. <laughs> Why? Because knowledge doesn't make any difference if you don't act. And motivation is all about action. And so I just wrote the book about how do you learn to want to act? How do you learn to want to work out, to want to eat right, to want to make a sales call? How do you learn to want to do it? And, you know, part of what I dispel in the book is the concepts of, commitment and and discipline you know those are bankrupt concepts they mean nothing commitment and discipline and i know there's been whole seminars books written about them probably whole careers on the concepts of commitment and discipline but if you want to do something what do you need commitment and discipline for <laughs> that's right you shouldn't well and it's actually kind of a weird play on words, right? So if you're disciplined, isn't that just another form of a conversation? I want to do this. There's a part of me that doesn't want to do this, but there's a bigger part of me that wants to do this. Mm -hmm. I guess that would be the distinction of commitment. So instead of dealing with, hey, you need to be committed and you need to have discipline, like you need to get good grades. I just teach people how to want to do it. Yeah, it's a lot easier that way. Yes, then it's fun and it becomes a habit and you produce consistent results. So Richard Bliss Brook, uh, at Richard Bliss Brook, he's a motivational speaker, author, master networker. The guy's been in the game and a master of it for many, many years. You'll be able to catch him uh, on many stages. Now, probably not as many because of COVID, but where else can they reach out to you and catch up with you? Zoom and... Um... What is it? What are you on? Uh, Streamyard uh, stream and Streamyard. Yeah, Zoom and Streamyard. Buy those stocks. 
right? This is that's yeah, the way exactly. to pivot, right? Get out of oil and gas and get into solar and wind and Zoom. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it doesn't matter who's running the country. And so if you want to pick up a copy of his book, you can see it here on the screen, shop.blissbusiness.com forward slash collections forward slash books. And you can probably get this awesome hat that I got sent to me by Richard. Thank you, buddy. I love this little nice trucker hat. Awesome quality. Living the bliss life. So thank you, my friend. Thanks for being on with us here on Game Changers. Thank you, Sergio. It's an honor. All right, my friend. Have a great one. Good. Thanks. Thanks.